You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. If you'd like to turn to the Word of God, uh, you'll find the Bibles somewhere in the seats where you're sitting. And we're going to look tonight at the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, and two sections, small sections from that book. First of all, Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 36. Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 36. And then after that, if you can remember this, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So Daniel 2, 36 to 45, and Daniel 7, 13 and 14. First of all, Daniel interprets the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, and then there's Daniel's dream. So first of all, God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream, beginning at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of feet were partly iron and partly clay, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king who shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. And now turning to chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. Its dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the very word of God. We thank God for his truthful and inerrant word, and to him be the praise and the glory. And now let's pray. Loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we again thank you that you are a Father who loves us, a Son who has died for us, and a Holy Spirit who indwells us. We thank you for redeeming us as we have trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ, and in what he has done for us on the cross of Calvary. We thank you that in him, your Son, your eternal Son, we have that ultimate victory that he won on the cross over sin, the world, and the devil. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our risen, ascended Lord, that to him has been given all authority, all glory, and sovereign power, and that his kingdom is one in which we will share, that kingdom an everlasting and indestructible one. Lord, you have called us to your service. Make us worthy of your calling. You call us into service and inevitably into the conflict which will inevitably face us as we remain faithful to him. Keep us, we pray, steadfast and faithful. And as we pray that, we know that you will keep us and sustain us to the very end. And we ask these things and pray to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our eternal King. Amen. Amen. It's a great joy to welcome tonight, uh, I think it's true to say, our first American to visit us and to lecture to us in one of our autumn lectures. Uh, Jeff Ventrella, you have the details on the screen there and on your sheets. And I, I've asked Jeff in a few moments if he'll say a word to us about himself as a person and about the organisation for which he works before he gives his more formal lecture. Jeff is the senior vice president of the Alliance Defence Fund, which, to your shame, you may not have heard of, but after tonight you will know all about it. And I suppose it's an organisation which is much larger than Christian Institute, but it's similar to it in its nature and character, and we've been happy to work with Jeff on a number of occasions over the years. So... We don't feel we're welcoming a stranger. We feel you're a friend. We know mm. you well. Mm. And we you really do look forward to what you have to say to us tonight. Thank you so much, John. I so appreciate the uh, opportunity to come 
as a, as a colonist, in fact, who come here and uh, learn something. Uh, well, I've enjoyed getting to know the Christian Institute over the years, and I consider them such a key ally in what we're doing. Uh, biographically, I uh, started out as a child, and I'm a lawyer. <laughs> if you think about it, that uh, disproves uh, Sir Charles Darwin's idea that things continue to get better over time. Um, but uh, no, I've been an attorney for nearly a quarter of a century, but for the last nine years, over nine years, I've been with the Alliance Defense Fund, which is a charity, a nonprofit legal organization that works to um, engage uh, these issues, issues of moral import from a Christian perspective in the public square. And what we do is through uh, training, through strategy, through funding, and through litigation, we seek to protect religious liberty, protect life, and protect the family from all the assaults that are occurring because this is where the issues were arising. Uh, When I joined the Alliance Defense Fund, um, I was, I think, employee number 13. Uh, That was in the year 2000. I think we have 140 currently. There's a great need for this, and we are uh, privileged to be able to partner with allies across the pond, like the Christian Institute, which in my book is the most effective advocacy organization uh, that's going over in Europe because of its strategic, its endurance, its perseverance, and its commitment to excellence. And so I just uh, feel a great privilege to be able to come here. Uh, On a personal note, I've been married 23 years. My wife and I have uh, only five living children. They are four boys, 20, 18, 16, 14, and our daughter's five. So um, that means I need to exercise daily if I truly want to walk her down the aisle in a number of years and not be rolled down the aisle with that, as the case may be. But it's a, it's a great privilege, and since I'm seven hours behind you, it's going to be a very long evening because my time has just begun. <clears throat> and Jeff, you play the trumpet, don't you? Yes, I was a musician. Tonight, have you? I was a musician. I did not bring the trumpet. But you're going to sound a trumpet call tonight. Indeed. Right. Verbally. <laughs> Even with my slack American accent, I will try my best. Uh, with that said, let me again say I'm going to be addressing um, some very specific issues tonight. But I never want to have those specific issues looked at abstractly. That is to say, extracted from and overarching bigger issues. We must all, as believers, learn to intentionally keep the main thing the main thing. So I want to begin with a question that I think will focus us to keep the main thing the main thing. It's an awkward question. It's a forward question. I won't have you raise your hands, but I think everyone would if I asked it this way. Who in this room wants to win the world for Christ? I think that's one of the main things we need to think about. I think that's one of the things that Daniel the prophet was talking about, a king having dominion over all nations. So hold that thought. I suggest that everyone in this room wants to win the world for Christ. That's going to be really the wallpaper to my remarks this evening. And I want to introduce uh, the formal lecture by posing this question. As Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, I began thinking about the question of, well, then who is the stupidest man who ever lived. Did you ever think about that in contrast? Solomon's the wisest. Who's the dumbest guy? I think I know the answer to that. The answer to that is the uh, man found in the book of Judges, chapter 15, the 1,000th Philistine. 
Remember the situation you have Samson, right? He has the jawbone of a donkey. The Philistines are attacking him, and he begins slaying them one by one. 28 dead, 97 dead, 134 dead, 362 dead, 512 dead. That's the brother of number 278. All these people are dying, and they're stacking up, and they continue to come to him, right? And then you have 964, 996, 999, and you still have that 1,000th guy, right? saying, come on, Samson, what you got? Show me what you got, Samson. Think about it. This guy had to climb over 999 dead bodies. And, of course, what happened? He dies. That guy's got to be dumber than a box of rocks. <clears throat> There's a point to this, though. Why would someone look at reality that way and still act irrationally? Sometimes we do the same things as Christians, I think. What's really going on here? Well, there's more than stupidity at work in that story. I want to probe this a little bit more deeply, a little closer to home. Suppose that when you awoke uh, tomorrow morning, you opened up uh, whichever paper you look at, the mail or the telegraph, and you were greeted with great big black bold letters. And that headline proclaimed to you that immorality pervades the church. If you're like me, you would quickly have a few hunches as to what that story was about. When the story proclaimed immorality pervaded the church, I would think something like, oh, there must be some fiscal impropriety. Someone has their hand in the the collection plate in some way. Or you might think it has to do with some form of immorality, sexual dalliances and so forth. And certainly the church and the church's of both of our countries have been plagued with this sort of thing. But I want to suggest to you that an even bigger scandal exists today in Christ's church, a scandal of enormous immorality, but it's not a scandal about sexual dalliances nor about fiscal impropriety. To understand the scandal of which I'm referring, we need to consider an event evolving, involving the Savior. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is challenged. He's challenged by a lawyer, and he's asked by this challenger this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds directly by quoting Deuteronomy, the Shema in chapter 6. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus makes plain that this is a moral priority and involves not simply ceasing from impure thoughts, as important as that is, but indeed the very manner of our thinking ought to be distinctively Christian. And if the greatest commandment is to love God in this way, it follows axiomatically that the greatest immorality flows from transgressing this commandment. Failing to love God with our minds is sinful. And I suggest to you that it exists in epidemic proportions in the church today. There are two components to this tragedy. The first component is this. There's a data component. There's a crisis of illiteracy here. Burge points to research conducted at Wheaton College, which is a premier evangelical college in the States. Here's what the research shows. 
one-third of the incoming students at this Christian college could not put the following in order. Abraham, the Old Testament prophets, the death of Christ, and Pentecost. Half of them could not sequence the following. Moses in Egypt, Isaac's birth, Saul's death, and Judah's exile. One-third could not identify Matthew as an apostle from a list of New Testament names. Like Burge, George Leinbeck, the great Yale scholar and theologian, commented on this. Here's what he said as a professor. He said, quote, When I first arrived at Yale, even those who came from non-religious backgrounds knew the Bible better than most of those now who come from church-going families. David Wells, another theologian, put it this way, I have watched with growing disbelief as the evangelical church has cheerfully plunged into astounding theological illiteracy. Put bluntly, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot love God as we ought with an empty mind. We must know something about Him and about His Word and His purposes for our lives if we're to obey the greatest commandment that Jesus identified. But there's more to the scandal of the Christian mind than simply ignorance and illiteracy and data deficit. And it goes back to this idea of this Philistine. There's something else going on. And that something more is very foundational and directly impacts how one engages the culture, particularly legally. We get a glimpse of this notion from the Apostle Paul. There, the Apostle Paul in uh, Romans chapter 1 says, in verse 25, this. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for the lie, literally it's the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. There's an exchange going on in the natural man because of the fall. What we have is the truth clashing with the lie. It's being exchanged, and in that exchange, it creates conflict, a clash. Paul picks up this same notion when he explains it to the Corinthians, where he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, note the description Paul gives. He gives a command after this description. He tells us to take every thought captive, and I would suggest that includes thoughts pertaining to the public square, to public policy. All those kinds of thoughts must somehow flow into the lordship of Jesus, take captive to him. Again, going back to Daniel, he is to have dominion over all rules and realms, including our minds and including the public square. And notice also in describing this conflict, Paul uses the language of great conflict itself. He speaks of weapons, he speaks of war, he speaks of warfare, he speaks of either demolishing things or casting down things, pulling down strongholds. It's a war of worldviews that's going on here. Modern scholars from various theological backgrounds have identified and described this same uh, war. Notice, here's one. 
Here's an archbishop who happens to be a Roman Catholic. He summarizes the conflict this way. Christ never absolved us from resisting and healing the evil in the world. Our fidelity is finally to God, but it implies a faithfulness to the needs of His creation. Like it or not, we are involved, and there is, after, after all, a war on. It's the same conflict Tolkien meant when he wrote that, quote, human wars are always lost, and the war always goes on, end quote. It's the same conflict C.S. Lewis meant when he wrote that, quote, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan, end quote. And this war goes on without rest in every age, in every nation, in every human life, in every choice, in every decision, in every action, in every public issue. Another modern scholar puts it this way. Dr. Rush Dooney is a Reformed theologian. He says, We are therefore in a state of war. War between heaven and humanism. War between Almighty God and the totalitarian state. War between God and the scientific planners, predictors, and controllers. War between God and all those who deny His infallibility. Such a conflict is a very uneven one, and there can be no doubt as to the outcome of this war. I cite these two gentlemen, not only because what they said I think is accurate and true, but notice these are on polar opposites of Christian orthodoxy. These are both Nicene Orthodox Christian uh, confessions. They are very different in some of their views and understanding of things. What's my point? My point is that this war is a decidedly Christian concern, not a sectarian concern. That's the war of which Paul is speaking. It is a large war, and the battle lines are between those who are followers of Jesus and the world. And so this war, this antithesis, is orthodoxy, robust orthodoxy, clashing with heresy in history. But understand this. This is a clash that serves redemption. Now, speaking this way, spiritual, talking about clashing, I mean, can't we just be nice? Can't we all just get along? But think about it. Is praying spiritual? I think most people would agree it is. Well, does the Bible tell us how we ought to pray? Jesus said something about pray this way, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that you would, what? Deliver us from evil. Now, do we pray this in faith or just in function? Do we pray this robustly or rotely? Do we pray it as a right or do we pray it because it's right? Do we pray those petitions expecting God to actually answer and even use us in the process of answering the petition Deliver us from evil. And if God does answer this prayer, what is our mission? To answer that, let's ponder why the Savior, why the Savior Jesus came. There are many reasons, but one surely stands out that applies to this particular issue. John the Apostle gets very specific as to why Jesus came. In his first epistle, he says this, The reason the Son of God appeared 
was to destroy the works of the devil. How many realize that was in the Bible? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now let's put on our thinking caps. Is censoring religious expression ultimately a work of the devil? Who wants Christians silenced? Is the destruction and redefinition of marriage a work of the devil? Let's see. Marriage pictures what? Christ and the church. Who wants that silenced and deconstructed? Are abortion on demand and Frankenstein bioethics works the devil? The Proverbs teach us what? All those who hate me love death. These are decidedly ultimately works of the devil. And accordingly then, this sort of conflict will ultimately serve redemption when the conflict engages on these touchstone issues. And this is the language of the antithesis. Orthodoxy clashing with heresy in history to serve redemption. And this is a war involving our thinking. It is a war of worldviews. Okay. Oops, I went too far, didn't I? Ah, there's that guy. It's a war of worldviews, not a war of... That's me, can't you tell? Isn't that great? It's a war of worldviews, with apologies to H.G. Wells. But what is a worldview? It's kind of a popular thing now in evangelical circles, but worldviews are the basic intellectual pre-commitments that we have. Okay? They're a network of presuppositions, not tested by natural science, but they are the ones through which we relate and interpret all of human experience. That sounds kind of abstract, but it basically informs us of our ultimate authorities, what we consider evidence. It's really ground zero where we are cognitively and dispositionally. And everybody has a worldview, whether that's you know, Joe Sixpack at the tractor pool in Texas or atheistic philosophers like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. They all have a worldview. Well, what do worldviews do? They answer three basic questions. We can think of worldviews both as a system and as a story. Philosophically, they're a system. They answer the basic philosophic questions. What's real? How do I know? And how should I act? Or if you want to be real technical, metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology. Every worldview answers those three questions. Or we can talk about worldview through the purpose of story, okay? Creation, fall, redemption. Or in other words, ultimate origins, from where did all this come? Fall, what's wrong? And redemption, what's the hope? What's the solution? So we can talk about it through cosmology, hamartiology, the doctrine of sin or something, or soteriology, redemption. Or just creation, fall, redemption. What's the beginning? What's wrong? What's the solution? For example, Marxism is a worldview. What's the, what's the uh, theory of, of creation? Dialectical materialism. In the beginning, there was dialectical materialism. <laughs> Lenin put it this way. He said, we may regard the material and cosmic world as the supreme being. Creation. What's the fall? Of course, the rise of the evil of private property. What's redemption? Destroying the original sin of private property via, via what? The proletariat redeemer. It's a story, but it's a story that takes place as a worldview. Now, when did this war occur? Remember, this is the war that Paul's talking about. When did it occur? Did it occur with the advent of Marxism? 
Um, did it occur in uh, 1066, the Battle of Hastings? Maybe 1859, publication of The Origin of Species? I know, MTV, right? This is when everything went down, right? Or perhaps 1776? I apologize, I apologize. <laughs> Actually, this war began shortly after creation with the fall of man. Note very carefully. God speaking, saying, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman. You know that devil? The serpent is the devil, the one that John says someone came to destroy? Hmm. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, don't miss this. God himself establishes the battle lines, and God himself declares war. God himself imposes a judicial hostility, a clash, an antithesis, a conflict in history. And that battle rages throughout history, and it is a battle for how we think and how we act for history. The battle lines are between covenant keeper and covenant breaker. And this means that these historical fissures are ethical in character. And therefore, they will necessarily involve law and sociopolitical ethics, what we call politics in the public square. By divine decree, there is a conflict that will be ethical between God's people and the father of what lies, and it will involve the public square. Now, note very carefully here. God inaugurates this conflict in history, but God works this conflict in history to serve redemption. Why? Because Genesis 3.15, the theologians tell us, is the first proclamation of the gospel. This is the first hope that comes to a fallen world. God announces it will come this way, through the seed of this woman, who we know is Christ, of course. He is the Redeemer, but it comes through this process of conflict between the father of truth and the father of lies. And so we can rightly say God declares war in order to bring peace. The conflict serves redemption. And this is true individually, starting with our own hearts, but also corporately and culturally. We see this over and over again. God divides, God delivers, and God destroys along the lines of this, of this covenantal antithesis. God divides, God delivers, God destroys. Look at it historically. Truth versus the lie. Abel and Cain, Noah in the world, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh, David and Goliath, Elijah and Baal, Daniel and Babylon, Jesus and the Pharisees. Oh, I left one category out, right? Heaven and hell. Ultimately, God divides, God delivers, God destroys along this fissure line. It's ethical in character, and each of those conflicts did what? Served redemption. And this is true conceptually as well. We see in the scriptures expressed metaphorically this very same truth. Paul puts it this way, right? The knowledge of God is set up against strongholds, arguments, and lofty opinions. And what's the knowledge of God according to the Gospel of John? This is eternal life that they 
know you. So eternal life versus death. Metaphorically, we see it this way. Light versus darkness, sheep and goats, wheat and tares, spirit and flesh, the alive and the dead, the foolish and the wise. Augustine expressed it as the city of God versus the city of man. So we see this being picked up over and over and over again. This is true covenantally. Covenant breakers are defined in terms of the pattern of their thinking. Remember the greatest commandment, loving God with our minds? Fascinating that when covenant breakers are described, over and over again, the scripture describes them in terms of their manner of thinking. Natural men are said to be futile in their thinking, Romans 1. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh do what? Set their minds on the things of the flesh. Titus, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Why? But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul tells the Colossians that there are people who are enemies in their minds. There's an opposition to God and it prevents them, in a sense, from worshiping God with all their minds. Yet covenant keepers are also described in this way. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Same transformed, same word, transfigured. When Jesus was transfigured, it's a change that's that's, uh, qualitative. It's not just adding data. It's a change from within. Uh, 1 Corinthians, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. In your thinking, be mature. Ephesians 4, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds, literally their reasonings. Colossians 1, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Peter, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Clearly, there's an antithesis going on between the truth and the lie. It involves our thinking. The problem is, absent redemption, and consequently, absence the conflict that leads to redemption, our reasoning is fallen. Now, I could have picked a number of people to, to uh, illustrate this. I'm going to pick then Cardinal Ratzinger. I could have picked Cornelius Van Til, one of my heroes. But look at this, how clear this is. Oh, Covenant, I already said that. I'm ahead of the game. You can go to sleep before midnight tonight. Of course, the attempt to use a strictly autonomous reason that refuses to know about faith to pull ourselves out of the slough of uncertainties by our own hair, so to speak, can hardly succeed in the end. For human reason is not autonomous at all. It is always living in one historical context of the other. The point is that our very minds are fallen. And we have to have what? Redemption. How does redemption occur? An encounter with God via the gospel. Now, beyond mere abstraction, Scripture tells us that we should expect this hostility, this antithesis to be expressed historically. It's not just simply that philosophers talk about this stuff or theologians play, you know, theological backgammon with it, okay? No, this is expressed historically. The Bible tells us, starting in many places, I'll start in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together to do what? Against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now note a couple things here. Who's doing the coming together? The kings and the rulers. Those in authority in these other kingdoms. But as we heard already, Daniel comes and said, there's going to be a kingdom coming that's going to rule over and smash these others. You either rule in, in uh, uh, derivation, derivatively from God, or he will smash you into pieces, okay? The next verse is, of course, he who sits in heaven laughs, scoffs at them. But here's what's going on. There is this idea of people in the public square wanting to be free of what? The cords and the bonds, the law, the order of their maker. Hmm, that has implications, doesn't it? The fish want to be free by jumping out of the fishbowl. Now, this particular psalm, Psalm 2, is quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 4. He applies it to Jesus. People plotted against him, right? And he applies it to them, the apostles, the disciples. Herod, the leader in the public square, kings. Pontius Pilate, the leader in the public square, rulers. In other words, this is one of those uh, prophetic utterances in the psalm that has recurrent fulfillments throughout the scripture. And we see this today. What does this look like? Again, the fish want to be free by casting off the order of what the creator has given them. Look in the area of life. Jesus says, quoted by Paul, what? This is my body for you. The idea is that life is produced. Jesus lays down his life voluntarily that we may live. This is my body for you. Now, what happens? People plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. It not only disagrees with this, it inverts it. What we have is, notice this, using the very same language. This is my body. What do the pro-choice people say? This is my body. Same language of the Savior, but with an inverted, subverted meaning. And what's produced? Death. Death is produced. Casting off the order of the Creator, Psalm 2. This applies in the area of marriage, okay? What is marriage? Marriage, as we know, is a creational ordinance. One man and one woman sharing everything that they can share, a self-giving, including fertility. What what happens next? By God's miracle life, right? That's the design. That's the order. That's the owner's manual. What happens today? Let's cast off. So what do we have? We are told that we can have Adam and Steve. And we have people that can share. They want to share everything they can share. But ultimately, what does it produce? Joy, freedom, liberty? No. Produces death. Let me tell you, there's a phenomenon. I know it's in the United States. It may be here as well. It's called bug chasing. And I hope everyone's had dinner. Let me just talk about this. In those who practice homosexual behavior, there's a sub-community. There's a group called bug chasers. There was a documentary a few years ago that, that dealt with this a particular phenomenon. 
The, the documentary is called The Gift. What are we talking about? We're talking about people who made in God's image, but have marred that through moral choices even more. They understand that they ought to be sharing all that they can share with their partner. And so what they do is they are healthy and they want to find someone who is HIV positive so that they can be infected, thereby share all that they can share. Whereas um, heterosexuals share all they can share, including their fertility that produces life, these folks will share all that they can share with so-called unprotected relations so that they can have the virus that leads to death. It's an exact inversion of what's going on of the created order. Now, what's fascinating about this, these are folks made in God's image. And so how do they characterize bug chasing? Using overtly religious language. They ask, have you, do you have the gift? After they have their encounter, they go have blood tests, of course, to see what happens, right? Just like if you were pregnant. Are you expecting? Have you been converted? Have you conceived? Fascinating, isn't it? We have to understand. That's why, you know, the 1,000th Philistine, he may not be dumber than a box of rocks. He may have suppressed his truth. But that's exactly what we expect because Paul tells us to expect that. Here we see essentially the roadmap of why we have to be involved in the public square, why we must be engaged in conflict that serves redemption. These are excerpts from Romans chapter 1. Let's walk through these. Now notice, first thing that Paul says is that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it. They don't obliterate it. They suppress the truth. They hold it down. He goes on to say that um, they exchange the truth for the lie. Interestingly, it says they know God. Literally, they know the God. If you're into Greek, you can see that. there. They know the God, but they became futile in their thinking. So what happened? They worshipped and served. They exchanged the truth for the lie. Now notice what happened. So let's get the order here. Suppress. In exchange, it provokes a religious response. Worship and service of creation. Worship and service in creation. What happens after that, though, is if you worship, you will act. The Psalms tell us you become like what you worship. I'm so thankful we began with prayer and singing today. We become like what we worship. Well, guess what happens? What happens is, ultimately, Romans 1.32, is that it says they not only practice these things, but give approval to those who do them. So, after there's this exchange, there's a worship response that leads to conduct, which then leads to approval. It looks like this. Suppress the truth, exchange the truth for the lie, worship and serve creation, practice unrighteousness, approve unrighteousness, which guess what? Who approves? The public square, the law, convention, but ultimately the magistrates, which leads to what? Greater suppression... Which leads to what? More exchanges of the truth, which leads to more of worship and service of the creation, including ourselves. 
practicing more unrighteousness, leading to more approval of the practice of unrighteousness, leading to greater suppression. If you stand for the truth, you ought to expect the approval of the lie, which will lead to suppression, suppression of you, suppression of your brothers and of your sisters. This teaching verifies that cultural engagement will involve law in its many forms. Paul says this produces a predictable pattern in history, a pattern that expresses itself culturally and ultimately implicates the law of the culture. Paul reasons as follows. First, our conscience is involved. involved. We suppress the truth. Second of all, there's a conversion experience. Man exchanges the truth for the lie. Then there's a communion experience. There's a worship and serving here that goes on which leads to ethical conduct. Unrighteousness is practiced and ultimately leads to culture, law. Unrighteousness is approved. This pattern culminates in the approval of unrighteous practices. This is why the culture's law is implicated and must be a concern for any Bible-believing Christian. According to Paul, paganism presses its practices seeking approval and in doing so brings into play the cultural icons that grant approval, including the law. That's what Psalm 2 said. The kings and the rulers try to go against the Lord and His anointed. The question, therefore, to understand is not whether the law will be involved. The question is whether the extant law will approve righteousness or unrighteousness. The law in the public square is inherently a Christian concern. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deliver us from evil. That's what Paul's getting at there. This is why Christians must be involved in the law, in the public square. Because you see, as pagans seek to approve their own suppression of truth, matters will be and are being litigated and, as a matter of public policy, in fundamental areas. Religious liberty, the sanctity of life, and the family. The issue is not whether the law will be involved. The issue is whether the law will promote righteousness or in righteousness. And so given this truth, whether acknowledged by the unbeliever or not, we know that he interprets the facts only through his corrupt worldview. His mind suppresses the truth. And so we can expect all kinds of weird things to pop out. I mean, all kinds, let me just give you a couple of examples. I just had to pick on this person, right? Suppress truth. Here's some examples. This is what this looks like in the 21st century. <clears throat> Even if there were no actual evidence of, uh, see, I can't read it there, of in favor of the Darwinian theory, we should still be justified in preferring it over all rival theories. What? Oh, you know who that is. Yes. Richard Dawkins. Really? Even if there's no evidence, we should prefer it? That's real rational, isn't it? Or someone from the States. Even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such an hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. Well, that's a great way to rig the game, I suppose. Isn't that interesting? Or we have people that say that's Kansas State. Here's one. Evolution came into being as a kind of secular ideology, an explicit substitute for Christianity. Hmm. I must admit that in the one complaint, the literalists are absolutely right. Those are people who believe in like biblical creation. Evolution is a religion. That was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is true of evolution 
still today. Really? We'll keep going. This is a very interesting one here. Listen to this. The same guy said all three of these. The position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when someone says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they may think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. I seriously doubt if someone runs a red light, he would say, the molecules made me do it. Sorry, no problem. A little more explicit is one here. Julian Huxley, you recognize his name. Another struggle still in progress is between the idea of a purpose directed to a future life in a supernatural world and one directed to progress in this world. However, until such major conflicts are resolved, humanity can have no single major purpose, and progress can be but fitful and slow. In other words, we've got to get rid of those supernaturalists, those, those dunderhead fundamentalists, you know. We can't have real meaning and real purpose and real progress of these religionists walking around. Here we go, Ernest Heckel. Christianity is to be found. I'll get the name up there. That's the guy with the fake uh, rooster embryo. Well, not rooster embryos, they're chicken embryos. Christianity is to be found to be an enemy to civilization. And the struggle which modern thought and science are compelled to conduct with it is a culture comp. These folks were self-conscious in their opposition, in their hostility, in their antithesis in history. Are you? They understood what conflict was all about. They intended it. They purposed it. What about us? Well, as Paul says, when you get to the point of uh, Romans 1, the issue isn't simply about creation and supernaturalism, though Paul starts out with saying what? God has made it known to them. Everyone knows God's the creator and they know his marvelous power. Interesting, where are they attacking? Creation. But where does it end up? Sexuality. Sexuality. In addition to the creature-creator distinction, sexuality and sexual conduct serves as another active fissure in this war of worldviews. Is there really, people have, I've, I've taught this in different capacities, not this lecture, but, but about the homosexual agenda. People, is there really a homosexual agenda? Let me bring you the words of uh, Peter Jones. Peter Jones is a theologian. He's a man from Liverpool, actually. Uh, Grew up in Liverpool. He was a desk mate of John Lennon. Played in the garage band with John. But then he went off to uh, Wales, got his first degree. Then he went over the pond to uh, Harvard, uh, Gordon Conwell, Princeton, and I think Brown as well. He's got a lot of degrees. And here's what Peter says. He says, whether Christians realize it or not, We are part of a human history that is destined for confrontation and conflict, there's those words again, with pagan spirituality. And that spirituality is driven in our time by a militant homosexual agenda. Really? Well, is there an agenda? Well, let's just ask some of the folks that are part of it that question. Being queer is a way of dealing with the world 
and in the process transforming the very fabric of society by radically reordering society's view of the family. She goes on to say, this is the law professor at the University of Michigan, we must keep our eyes on the goals of providing true alternatives to marriage and of radically reordering society's view of family. Hmm. Well, who is the target of this agenda? A Princeton professor puts it this way. It seems to me that the biggest single enemy to homosexuality is Christianity. Any self-respecting gay should be an atheist. Again, very purposeful, very intentional, very defined. You're the enemy. Hmm. So we have here, I'm going to go uh, move ahead. Some of this, other examples here. Oh, yeah, look, this is a great one. Rape is a natural biological phenomenon that is a product of human evolutionary heritage analogous to the leopard spots and the giraffe's elongated neck. So here you have the creational issue, evolution, coming to mix with the sexual issue. This is Romans 1. This is what happens when you reject the creator and worship the creation. Sorry, I'm innocent, Your Honor, because... The DNA made me do it. It was just a reflex. I sexually assaulted the woman because that's how I'm made. Wow, the genes made me do it. That's, oh, by the way, those are two professors at MIT. Brilliant. Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Brilliant guys. This is not a crackpot publication. They're there. And so we got a choice here. No one can serve two masters. Whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus, by the way. That sounds very antithetical, doesn't it? There's a conflict here. Well, now what happens when the truth of what Paul says enters the world? Well, there's a clash. There's a conflict, and that conflict has consequences in the public square. Uh, Exhibit A, Georgetown Law Professor. Georgetown, uh, supposedly a Jesuit institution. It's not at all. It's utterly uh, secular has a law professor, and that law professor's name is Kai Feldblum. She's a lesbian. She was asked candidly, there seems to be a tension between sexual liberty and religious liberty in the public square. How do you resolve that? In our country, we have, you know, the First Amendment that talks about religious liberty. We don't have an amendment that talks about sexual liberty. Here's what she says. When religious liberty... And sexual liberty conflict, she says, quote, I'm having a hard time coming up with any case in which religious liberty should win. You get that? If you have a religious conviction, a matter of conscience, you will lose, according to this law professor. Now, what's interesting is, guess who just got appointed by President Barack Obama to something called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission as a commissioner. That law professor. How would you like to take your case in front of her if you had a religious objection to something? Sorry, good point. I'm glad you're religious. You lose. The homosexuals win. You see, here's the point. And that's not radical. That's just logical. To approve one thing is to necessarily reject its opposite. Romans 1.32. And with respect to marriage and sexuality, what is being approved rejects what is right and what is righteous. There is a concerted effort to eliminate rivals, and we've got to understand that. 
The issue from the left's perspective is not simply their ability to practice what is right in their own eyes. No, they want you to agree with their choices. And when you don't, you are to be silenced or worse, coerced. That's the reality. Now, where does that happen? In the public square, in the law of the culture. Let me see what we have here. I'm going to go back here. Notice the truth versus the lie as to sexual expression. The truth says that marriage is the exclusive forum for expressing sexuality. The lie says that it's one option among many. As to childbearing, the truth says that marriage is the optimal environment for having and rearing children. The lie says pluralistic equal validity of all options. As to the social nexus of the couple... The truth says that marriage is communitarian, has a benefit outside of itself. The lie says it's mere companionship, doesn't matter the impact on anybody else. As to sexual anthropology, the truth says that men and women are complementarian. They complement one another. The lie says it's radical egalitarianism. It doesn't matter. Two men, two women, five people, 800 people, doesn't matter. It's egalitarian. As to one's personal orientation, the truth says... Marriage is other-oriented. The lie says it's self-oriented. I just need to get someone who satisfies me. As to sexuality, the truth says it's about sharing and self-giving. The lie says it's about self-fulfillment. As to the relational expectation, the truth says marriage is for life, commitment. The lie says it's a for-the-moment choice. I'm just tired. I don't need fault. I'm just, I'm out of here, Okay. Now, let me give you some illustrations of this homosexual agenda. It is radical, it is a confrontation, and it is designed to silence you. Let's talk about the United States. The United States, this agenda, is trying to force a church-owned camp association pavilion to permit a same-sex ceremony. You must allow the lesbians to do their ceremony there. It took away the tax exemption of the particular uh, church group to do that. The American Red Cross terminated, that means sacked, sacked a man for expressing disagreement with homosexual behavior. You're fired because you disagree with that. We have a situation where a Christian photographer declined to photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony. There are many, many photographers in this large city. She was then sued under a so-called Human Rights Commission deal, forced to pay $6,600 simply because she would not, as a matter of conviction, memorialize something she found objectionable from a religious Christian background. But you know what? Romans 1 is not uh, limited to the United States. It applies internationally in Brazil. The Senate there is considering legislation that would criminalize anything deemed to be a condemnation of homosexuality. Like maybe reading Romans 1. In the UK, of course, there are groups constantly seeking to strip uh, parochial schools from providing education because of the denomination stand on these issues. In Canada, the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario fined a Christian organization for using a morality clause in its employment contract. That morality clause proscribed employees from engaging in homosexual behavior, fornication, adultery, lying, basic morality provisions. This organization... 
uh, treats 1,400 developmentally disabled children. It operates 180 care homes. It employs 2,500 people. It receives government funding. And because they uh, re- uh, sacked this person, put them under discipline because they were engaged in immorality, they paid, uh, ordered a payment of $23,000 to the employee, plus two years of salary, plus two years of benefits, and required all the managers and leaders to undergo mandatory human rights training. That's where you go get your brains dry cleaned for a day or two. It's just unbelievable. You know about this. In the UK, the British Parliament has voted to require all adoption agencies to place homes in same, uh, same-sex homes, place children in same-sex homes. Canada, the court found a man guilty for violating Saskatchewan's human rights code. Why? He had a bumper sticker that had a reference to a Bible verse and then two stick figures, one depicting a man and a woman supporting marriage. Aha! Hate speech! Activists are seeking in Ontario to have churches' charitable status revoked if they oppose legislation favoring same-sex marriage. A Christian counselor in Canada was fined $1,000 for saying that homosexual behavior is not normal and not natural. You know the rest. I could go on and on and on and on. This is why Christians must be involved in the law. This is conflict that's being brought Not because we're rude people, right? Hopefully we're not. But because this is how it's been ordained of God. Genesis 3.15, Psalm 2, uh, Daniel 2, all these things. The state will be involved. The only question is, will the state promote and protect righteousness instead of evil? Do we pray and then do we act upon that great petition, deliver us from evil? Now here's a more practical question. When truth disappears publicly, when justice is in decline, when I can read these kinds of cases over and over and over again, when the works of the devil seem to increase, why? And we could talk, well, you know, sin, or, you know, we're going, you know, the end time, we could talk about, no, but just what, practically, why? I think the answer comes in part from uh, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 59, he says this, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. You see the point? The metaphor. Truth. What's the, what's the assumptive language? Truth is to be obvious. It's to be public. It's to be strong. It's to be visible. It's to be steady. It's supposed to be overt. And instead, in the public squares, it's teetering. It's tottering. It's unstable. It's being attacked. And you know what? God sees it and he's displeased. But more than that, we see the emotional life of our Lord, if I can say it reverently, disclosed where more than truth stumbling, 
He sees no man to intercede. It's like, folks, can't you see? Do you see? Truth is supposed to be steady and strong and overt and obvious, a beacon to righteousness. And it's teetering. It's tottering. It's unsteady. Can't you see that? Where's the one to intercede? And where do we intercede? In the public squares where truth is being unsteadied. There's no way around it. Truth is stumbled, as Isaiah says, in the public squares. And how should we go about that? We should go about steadying stumbled truth by using the legal system. Not guns and bazookas. Uh, There are religions that teach that, you know. Not Christianity. I can hear the objections because I've heard them before around the world. Well, shouldn't we just evangelize? Well, as a matter of fact, legal reformation often accompanies spiritual reformation. Legal reformation, the structure of the culture, provides a gateway by which there's spiritual reformation. It's a precondition. They are not enemies. One man put it this way, J. Gresham Machen. He says, a matter of fact, God usually exerts his redemptive power in connection with certain prior conditions of the human mind. And it should be ours to create, so far as we can, with the help of God, those favorable conditions for the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformal, reformer and yet succeed in only winning a straggler here and there if, if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the relentless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Is there a book called The God Delusion you may have heard of? What's the point there? Supernatural fairy tales. Harmless delusion. Yeah, exactly. But what we see in the scripture is all throughout legal reformation accompanying spiritual reformation. We see, whoops. We see this in the Pentateuch. We see this in the uh, history. I'm thinking of Jehoshaphat's reforms. It involves the appointment of judges. We see this in the wisdom literature over and over again. Interesting. <clears throat> I won't quote these. We see this in the prophetic literature. Interesting. I'll, I'll quote one. I, Amos chapter 5. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. That is publicly. Why? So that it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Jacob. Whoa. Establish justice in the gates publicly so that God will be gracious. Hmm. Interesting. Messiah does this so well. But think of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptizer, New Testament, loses his head. Why? Because he speaks about a creational ordinance regarding what? Marriage. Even though he's paving the way for the Messiah to come, he has time to speak ethically to the ruler and the king in the public square about marriage. Was he crazy? No. He did lose his head. He understood That was a conflict worth pursuing. We see this with the King of Kings too, don't we? The Messiah. Interpersonal care. Luke 19. Zacchaeus is converted. He calls him to himself. And what happens? Legal reformation. Restitution. 
Interesting. Repentance involves a public demonstration, even interpersonally. We see this in a communal care. Jesus teaches that in Matthew 18, that his community of believers is to be a community of what? Resolved conflict, a community of peace, reconciliation, justice. 1 Corinthians 6 says what? Don't sue your brothers in the secular courts. Resolve it justly amongst yourselves. Legal reformation is part of the community. And of course, culture care. All the way through the culture, uh, Matthew 28, were to teach them to observe everything that Jesus taught. He didn't just teach about uh, being born again, did he? He taught about the whole counsel of God. Very important to understand those particular principles. And so we need to go back and capture part of our history, part of your history. This is why uh, the first professor of law at Oxford, Sir William Blackstone, in discussing the public application of jurisprudence, could tie it to God. What he said is this, God's law, the law of nature, is binding all over the globe, in all countries and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. And such of them as are valid derive all their force and all their authority immediately or immediately from this original. He understood that conflict, even conflict of litigation, serves redemption. And so, if you love God with all your mind, the first great commandment, you will understand the antithesis and thus the need for this conflict. It's part of loving God with your mind. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, the second one like it, you will engage and support the public interest litigation and policy efforts because understanding as well that this sort of conflict serves redemption. So we love God, we engage in the conflict. We love our neighbor, we engage in the conflict because in both cases, God purposes it to lose redemption. And let me say this too. Doing this sort of life as a Christian is not for extra credit or something we can do in addition, like sprinkling um, you know, sugar on our oatmeal or porridge. It's, in fact, promoting truth in this way is a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. John Frame puts it this way in his recent book on Christian ethics. He says, Christian maturity is tested by its willingness to go against the odds, to go against the intellectual and practical fashions in the service of the king. It is easy enough to be a Christian when that merely requires us to be nice people. But love for Jesus, which is motivated by His great sacrifice, requires far more. It calls upon us to renounce what Scripture calls the wisdom of the world, the fashionable ideas and practices of our society, and to count them as rubbish for the sake of Christ. We honor those like Noah, who built an ark, though the world scoffed. Like Abraham, who set aside the evidence of his sentences, senses and the laughter of his own wife to believe that God would miraculously provide a son. Like Moses, who stood up to Pharaoh and brought him the word of God. Like Daniel, who faced lions rather than worship an earthly king. Like Peter and John, who told officials that we must obey God rather than man. You see, each of those heroes had moral heroism in the public squares. They engaged in conflict because they knew ultimately God was their champion and the conflict would serve redemption. 
we have to understand there is no neutrality here. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And so I want to end where I began. Who again wants to win the world for Christ? Then here's the reality. Quote, those who want to win the world for Christ must have the courage to come into conflict with it. Those who want to win the world for Christ must have the courage to come into conflict with it. The person who said that was a pastor martyred at Dachau in 1942. He counted the cost and realized to serve redemption, he had to confront the evil that was providently put on his plate. Let us purpose then to become the types of Christians that John notes in his third letter. John, the one who told us why Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In his last epistle, he says this. You understand why the Son of Man appeared. He's already told him that. He says that if we follow that Son of Man, we may become, quote, fellow workers for the truth. You see, the truth has been suppressed. The truth has been exchanged. Ungodliness has sprung up. And he calls us to be fellow workers for the truth. The truth is something that should be public. It should be steadied. It should be open. It should be notorious and obvious. And he's calling us Christians here and now to live in such a way that we are fellow workers for the truth. And God purposes conflict on behalf of the truth because that conflict will serve redemption. It's been my great privilege to address you this evening. Thank you for your time. I look forward to interacting with you formally and informally. God bless you. Thank you much, Jeff. And uh, an invitation there to interact. Maybe you've been challenged. You want to disagree or agree or affirm. But do say something. (laughs) Thank thank you very much. Uh, Most appreciated all that you've had to say to us tonight. Um, A number of us perhaps heard this weekend Patrick Sukdeo from the Barnabas Fund describe, he said, uh, the difference between Islam and Christianity was that the Muslim saw the whole of life as religious, whereas Christians tend to make a divide between the secular and the sacred. And he explained that uh, really what we should be doing in the realm of law is to um, formulate common law that was good for all religions and all different worldviews, so we could somehow, and I mean, that I, I say, I think I, I uh, recall accurately what he was saying there, notwithstanding all the very good things that he said that evening, I wonder whether you might comment on that comment about uh, Christianity as, as Patrick Sukdeo saw it. I think those observations are, are right on track. I think that much of uh, the current fare of evangelicalism has exactly borrowed from medieval scholasticism in a nature, grace, sacred, secular dichotomy. You see it also in a, in a um, revival of a two-kingdom view of uh, public ethics, saying, well, the Christian community is bound by the Ten Commandments, but that's all that sort of kind of thinking. 
It is true that uh, Islam has a totality of life experience because it's easy to, to uh, promote that when it's your head or your hand that comes off if you disagree. But of course, Christianity is not coercive in that sense. Uh, Christianity is a persuasive uh, religion and it also happens to be the truth, whereas Islam is not. I'm probably in trouble for saying that in the United Kingdom, aren't I? Well, bring it on. <clears throat> but... Um, it's exactly right. The privatization of the faith. They realize that scripture never limits redemption to individual souls, to soul winning. It never does. Salvation is organic. It involves redemption of the entire creation. Every thought is to be taken captive, including political thoughts, including thoughts in the public square. And so we need to recapture it. I believe the issue is fundamentally we've refused in function, if not confession, to proclaim Jesus is Lord. That's the defining issue. Because his lordship, therefore, deals with everything that he is. And if that's true, then it affects everything that we've done. If sin affects every part of creation, how much more redemption? And so we've confused our categories with that. It's a pernicious um, doctrine that allows us to um, justify our disengagement. And I think it's dead wrong. Thanks, Jeff. Very, very helpful. Let me ask you, why do we as Christians feel so afraid about this idea of conflict? Is it because we don't know our Bibles well enough? Is it because our churches aren't teaching us? Is it because the world is telling us, you guys should be loving, you're not being loving, be more loving towards me, and we're, we're terrified by that? What is it that makes us scared of conflict? I think there's a couple of reasons. One of them is a reason that um, when evangelicalism really took root in the, really the 40s, after the war, there was much talk about the notion of extending a personal relationship with Jesus. The Bible never talks about our faith that way. I don't think it's incorrect. We do have a personal relationship with Jesus. But that allows us to be private and therefore not engage in a public way. I think there are... um, Uh, Another reason is, uh, it may relate to the idea of being illiterate on the Bible, but it's this idea, judge not, who are you to judge? It's the decontextualization of scripture that the evil one uses against us. And so, uh, judge not, it's like, well, wait a minute, we're supposed to, for example, choose our leaders having these characteristics. Oh, judge not, I want to be an elder, just elect me. Well, wait a minute, how's that? You have to be involved in discernment. Here's, I think, part of the problem is we've gotten sloppy. Um, Hebrews chapter 5 contains a very interesting passage where the author, and we can debate who that is at some further point, <clears throat> I think it's Apollos, but anyway, he says this, We have much to say. It is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The idea there is a training, a constant repetitive uh, practice of learning to discern good from evil. The assumptive language of this author is you can't always tell easily. 
The simple answer may not be, the, the surface answer may not be the real answer. So there needs to be a deepening of our uh, passion for this. Jesus says what? You, you don't have because you don't ask. Do we pray for some of these things that God would open our minds and so forth? We might in his light see light and those sorts of things. So I think that we're kind of goaded into this idea, I'm not being loving. Uh, and that's what, Now we are to be gentle, we are to be patient, we are to be humble, but we're to be bold. Those things go together in the Christian. So I think there needs to be a good teaching on this. I also think we've truncated the gospel to mean, um, are you going to heaven or not? And that's just not textually what the word gospel means at all. The gospel is the proclamation that the king has come, and as a consequence of that, he has brought peace to rebellious man for the work of his son and exalted him above every nation and every power and every authority and so forth. It's way bigger than uh, are you going to heaven or not. Hello. Um, You've shown us quite a few examples of uh, how in the world there is a lot going on that could make us depressed. How do you say that we... Um, cling on to the good news, uh, both of Jesus Christ and both kind of the good that we see around us to stay, um, to stay joyful in this world? Uh, you ask a fine question because the question then becomes, well, how do we live? There's basically three answers I'm simplifying here. One is Christ against culture. This is the us for no more, let's form a holy huddle and go live under a rock and we'll just keep away from taste not, touch not moralism, we'll stay away from people. That's one answer that's been given, it's wrong. The other answer is the pendulum on the other side, what I call Christ and culture, a robust and futile accommodationism. Um, Howard Dean, who is the president of the Democratic Party, the Alliance Defense Fund is not partisan at all, but this is just an example. We're not a political group, but Howard Dean once said, and he's a medical doctor, so he's a smart guy. He said, my favorite book of the New Testament is Job, but I don't like how it ends. I mean, you couldn't make more theological mistakes in one sentence if you tried. You know, so my point is he's accommodating. That's not the answer. The answer is found in Revelation 21, behold, I make all things new. Jesus transforms all things. And so what we have to do is focus on him. It's not focusing on our self-sufficiency. It's not wringing our hands going, oh, it's getting really bad. You say, of course it's really bad. What a great opportunity. Well, I think it was Ignatius who said, uh, what was the last thing the barbarians did? This is, you know, the sacking of Rome and all this stuff. So the last things the barbarians did was get baptized. They were converted. Well, you must always understand that greater is he that is in you than is in the world. Our job is to propel that truth and that greatness out there. Paul calls us hooper nikeo, more than conquerors. And so if we understand and saturate and marinate ourselves in the truth of who we're called to be and how that kingdom comes, that's one reason I had um, John read Daniel passage. Man, get that into your bones. We've got that king, the final kingdom that's come, that has dominion over all things. He will not fail. It's made from not human hands. It's supernatural in power and authority. Wow. And Paul says we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay? That's where we live and move and have our being. So I, I get Jesus bumps in the back of my head when I start thinking like that. 
So I think we, we do that. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy. Victory is assured, uh, but there's cost to it. There's conflict. It's like in World War II. Great conflict, great loss, ultimate victory. And we have to walk, what, by faith. When I was growing up, um, the thought of marriage breaking up just really didn't exist. It was just not talked about. You talked happily about family and, and, and children. And I can remember the first time that I became aware that a man was having an affair with another woman. Uh, the issue of homosexuality... I mean, I hope people will understand when I say that there was a joke at school, and this was when I was a teenager, about queers. And there was one or two little ditties, which some people here will, will recall. But it wasn't a sort of issue. And frankly, I didn't understand, to be honest, what, what, what was being uh, expressed. Now, if Christians have been timid, because I think we are timid so often, why is it that these issues like uh, the family, you can have two men, two women, whatever you want, the question of sanctity of life and so on, why is it that they're now out there in the, in the public uh, arena? Because these things went on uh, in, in the past, but they were done privately, mm-hmm. as, it, as it were. So if we've been timid, why is it that these issues have become... Public, uh, public property in a way that we now as Christians are being attacked when we've been timid? Well, I think that the, the, uh, you raise a great question because is this a particular point in history that's unique? Well, yes and no. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon tells us. And so we can see patterns in history of where these kinds of things go. Paul tells us that when sexuality... Um, um, ultimately becomes dissolved. When marriage dissolves, you're going to see the eclipse of the culture. In fact, it was Joseph Unwin, who, of course, you know some of his work, um, the Cambridge anthropologist, that demonstrated that once a culture abandons what he deemed absolute monogamy, man and woman, united in marriage for life, uh, it takes about 40 years, but it will collapse. It will, its energy will dissipate and it will uh, decline significantly. But the question you ask is more refined than that. Why is it now public as opposed to something shamed? I think law follows culture. So I think you have to look back on how cultures change. I believe cultures change uh, through the clergy, through, through those who wear robes in the culture. The clergy the academy, the universities, and also through the judiciary and the, the uh, parliament and those sorts of things. And I think what you'll find is that early on, the church began to get soft on various aspects, for example, of the family. First example, uh, 1930 Lambeth Conference. For the first time in uh, church history, an established Christian body extracted uh, procreation from the unitive uh, component of marriage. First time in history, 1930, where the, it said there was, there was a permissibility to use contraception. Now, I'm not want to debate that point at all. I'm just showing you this idea had consequences. In 1931, just after that conference concluded, uh, the New York or the Washington Post, a very leftist newspaper, wrote an editorial 
In that editorial, they said, this is a horrendous ruling. It will lead to all sorts of public immorality and ultimately to the destruction of marriage itself. The, New York, or the Washington Post saw that in 1931. Okay, advance that 15 or 20 years, and you had Alfred Kinsey, under the guise of science, doing all these experimentations. In fact, we found out later, child molestation, to, to make sexuality what? Oh, this is just a clinical biological thing. In other words, extracting again intimate acts from uh, conjugal relations between husband and wife. So all these kinds of things have a leavening effect. Well, by the time those leaven uh, hit in 1962, the invention of the birth control pill, unleashing the sexuality of the 60s, it was too late. President Ronald Reagan was asked his worst decision as he was a governor of California. What did he identify as his worst decision? (coughs) Signing of the bill that created no-fault divorce. He regretted it. He thought it was trying to, trying to release women from horrible situations, and there were horrible situations. They could not get away from abusive spouses and so forth. But he saw the carnage that occurred when we just kind of said, oh, that's okay. Well, where were the churches <laughs> when it was divorced for any reason or no reason at all? So it's, a, it's, it's complicated, but you're absolutely right. It is now public. I think with the... Uh, Social networks, what do you call them? Facebook, all that kind of stuff. I'm old. I mean, I I don't know that stuff. But it's out there all over the place. Your children know way more about this stuff because it's out there all over the place. That uh, uh, access to that kind of data has a dulling effect. And so it becomes commonplace. It's no longer shameful. I remember growing up, I'm not super old, but I remember remember divorce being a four-letter word. It was something my parents would talk about when the neighbor was, oh, they're getting a divorce. Scandalous. And now it's like people count them. Oh, yeah, I've got you know, three X's and whatever. So. When we read about Barack Obama in the papers over here, um, we, we get the picture of this uh, nice, intellectual, warm guy. Depends which paper you read, Gerald. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, when a white policeman and a black professor have a have a bust up, he's the, he's the nice guy who invites the man for a beer to sort it all out. Um, could you say something more about what you think his, uh, his impact will be on uh, the Christian faith? Personal opinion, these are not the uh, opinions of the Alliance Defense Fund, which is a non-profit, non-partisan, non-sectarian <laughs> organization. Um, from a legal perspective, there is great trouble brewing that can have emanations for decades. He has already appointed uh, Judge Sotomayor uh, as a Supreme Court Justice. Uh, We have every reason to believe she is as liberal as Justice Souter, whom she replaced. We also know, one of my students, uh, uh, can I say this? Um, I know someone very well who was on the Senate Judiciary Committee who, through not divulging any confidences, was, was researching her for her hearings, and she is very much on board with the what I would call the deconstellization of America in the sense of importing foreign precedent. She's all for basically taking away the people's sovereignty and doing that. That's a tremendously bad idea. In terms of religious liberty, well, what has he done? He has made a priority of getting rid of the don't ask, don't tell provision for the U.S. military, meaning the homosexuality will be um, just fine. 
he has uh, pushed for and now has signed the so-called amendment of uh, hate speech with respect to a sexual orientation. You need to understand that sexual orientation is a political term. It's not a medical term. It's not a biological term. It's a political term. You can't define one's sexual orientation. It's pure subjectivism. It's predicated upon behavioral choices. He's now made it ensconced in federal law, meaning that when Christians have a moral conviction on certain issues, they are going to be subject to uh, civil and perhaps criminal sanctions for so-called hate speech and so forth. Um, His choice of Professor Kai Feldblum for the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, as a commissioner is greatly trembling since he appointed her after she went on record saying that she can't think of a case in which religious liberty would win against a claim of sexual liberty. We see him saying that America is not a Christian nation, something that the Supreme Court has repeatedly held and something that is certainly embedded in the structure inherited from Britain. He instead said that Islam uh, produced marvelous benefits to America. I, I can't think of one, personally. So, so I am deeply troubled personally by the legacy that's going on there. His selection of Kathy Sibelius uh, to be the director of uh, human services, a rabid pro-abortionist. So we see a leftist agenda coupled with uh, statism. That is to say, the state assuming greater responsibility and control of the economy. That's a dangerous cocktail, in my view, for religious liberty. Because again, who's being targeted? The Christians are being targeted. Now, is this going to happen um, in one fell swoop? Well, I doubt it because he's a politician. But what is happening are the pillars and the placemats are being set. The table is being set. And at a certain point where there's a critical mass, you're going to see a continued marginalization of the public expression of Christian faith. Uh, I could go on, but the policies themselves, as well as the appointments he has made, are quite troubling. Uh, He is far more to the left than, um, frankly, any president that I can recall in terms of policies and uh, what have you. And religious liberty does not appear to to be faring very well. You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk